You can get your Bibles open to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be in Paul's letter to the church in Colossae this morning. Uh, and if you haven't kind of noticed, things are a little bit different today. Uh, we're, we're, we've kind of skipped over something we typically do during our worship time, which is our congregational prayer time. Uh, today we're going to do it at the end of the service. Uh, there's something special coming up that I'm not actually willing to say yet because we're on live stream. Um, but we're going to spend some time praying over something that's coming up. And um, We're going to do that together at the end. Uh, but for right now, we're going to be in our series um, on the one another's. We've been working through these commands uh, that are found in Scripture because we want to know how to relate to one another rightly. But even before that, we, like Joseph said, we want to know how to obey Jesus well. Uh, radically, totally, every part of our lives in surrender to obedience to Jesus. And, and one of the best ways we can show that is how we relate to one another. And so these commands have been really helpful uh, in, in how we think and relate to one another. And starting off with love, confessing to one another, bearing with one another, bearing one another's burdens. I think last week was a lot of people's favorite with sing to one another, or at least that was some people's favorites. The other was like, no, I'm not doing that still. Um, but I love hearing you guys sing. Uh, on Sunday mornings. This is an incredible blessing. And today we've got a new one, and I want to set it up in this way. Uh, you know, one of the, one of the um, most important roles that we have in our culture today or in our society today is uh, the role of a teacher. Would you agree? Teachers have played vital uh, roles in, in developing and building up the next generation. Actually, let me ask this. How many of you have served as a teacher of students, even including like homeschool and and that stuff, yeah. Like, pray, let's just, yep. That's an incredible, incredible uh, role. And, and like, if you think about it, there's not much about that job that can be selfish, right? <laughs> like, you know, as a teacher, you didn't get into it for the big bucks you're making, right? You didn't get into it because of the easy days you had to have, right? No, no, you, the teachers deal with all sorts of problems, right? They terribly long hours every day, uh, not the greatest salary in the world. And not only that, but they had to deal with students like me, right? Uh, guys, in fifth grade alone, one year, I was sent to the principal's office five different times. Now, um, <laughs> I have a different narrative uh, than what you guys are thinking. I, I think the teacher had it out for me. I don't know why. Uh, I, was, I thought I was a good kid, um, but I, I digress. But I will say that a lot of teachers face a lot of difficulties in their job, and one of them uh, that has really kind of surfaced and tried to be addressed in the last like six decades has been the problem of student-to-teacher ratio, right? Think about it, right? One of the, one of the hardest things that a teacher has to do is, is herd a bunch of cats and then try to teach them at the same time, and the more cats you throw in there, the harder it gets, Right? The, the ratio of, of students to teacher, uh, it has, it's been found out that the lower that ratio is, this is common sense, right? The better the education is for the student, right? The better they learn. The more individual it can get, the better they learn. The more likely they are to have the better outcomes that you try to get at in education in the field. Now, According to some, some surveys, in 1955, that ratio, the, the student-to-teacher ratio, was 27 students to every one teacher on average all over the U.S. 27 students to one teacher. Like, come on. That's not a good ratio, right? Now, they they've figured out that that was a big problem, that that wasn't helping 
them reach their outcomes for the students. And so then what they do, they, they change the ratio. And how'd they do that? They hired more teachers, right? The, the students kept coming regardless, but they needed more teachers. And now the ratio is at like 16 to 1. And, and educational outcomes have been a bit more proven over the last 67 years. That's how they solved it. They hired more teachers. Huh. On the flip side, you want to know one of the biggest problems that pastors have in churches today? student-to-teacher ratio. So let's just pretend for a minute that this was a classroom. You guys are students and I'm the teacher. Uh, You know what that ratio would be? 95 to 1. How many of you in the teacher field would be like, I'll take that class any day? I thought so. Silence. (whistles) Cricket, where'd they go? That's just not good education. That's not a good strategy for developing students, learners, right? Now, don't get me wrong. This is really good. And this is actually part of what we're supposed to do as a church. We're to gather under the teaching of God's word specifically. And I love getting to do this. Like, I, like, I, I don't know how much you know I love this, but I love getting to do this. This is the best part of what I get to be a part of as a pastor. But, but I got to tell you that this was never designed to be the only way in which Jesus' followers grow up in understanding the truth. No, in our text this morning, Paul is going to directly address the issue of this, and he's going to provide a solution. And you know what his solution is? Hire more teachers. In fact, make every one of Jesus' followers a teacher. He does this when we see in the verse that we're going to be studying this morning that the command is literally to teach and admonish one another. Can you say that? That's our one another command for the week. And, and, and if you, I'm pretty sure some of you have just checked out because you're like, uh-uh, this isn't, nope, this isn't mine. I'll, I'll, wait, I'll tune in next week for the next one, whatever we got. No, this is God's word, and if you're serious about following Jesus, this is something you need to obey. And so we're going to get after it. We're going to get under understanding what this text really means. So let me kind of explain the context a little bit. Again, Paul is writing to the church in Colossae. He just talked about things that we're to be doing in the Christian life, things that we're to be putting on. He talks about how we need to be taking off bad things and putting off good new things and, and things like compassion and kindness and, 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 and gentleness. And then in verse 14, he says, one of the best things above all, put on love. There it is again how we're to relate to one another. And then we get to verse 16 in chapter 3. If you could take a look there. Verse 16 of chapter 3. It says this. Then let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. There it is again, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That was a shout out to last week, right? But note, note, note something. We, we have our command. We have our one another thing that we're looking at today. It's to teach and admonish one another. But here's a, here's a test question, and, and this, this is good practice for us whenever we get into this, how to analyze things. Is the command to teach and admonish one another, is it the main imperative? Is it the main command of that text, of that verse? What's the answer? No, it's not the main thing. You know what is the main thing? To let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. 
You remember how we talked about how last week it says, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, singing to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? The main imperative there was, was be filled with the Spirit. And the response of that, or the, it's a participle, which means it's, a, it's describing what that looks like, is to sing to one another. This week, our main command, technically in this verse, is to let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then the overflow of that, the outflow of that, the way that that looks like is that we teach and admonish one another. We teach and admonish one another. Now, to teach means to instruct. And and, and actually, more literally, if we're going to get serious about it, it means to cause someone to learn. Which, which actually kind of helps clarify the role of a teacher, right? It's your responsibility to help the other person learn, to cause that person to learn. So we get creative in how we teach. The other verb we see here, or participle, or participle verb, is, is to admonish. We teach and we admonish. To admonish means that we instruct and even if it's like a warning, or if it's, if it's an admonition, or if like, a, 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 like something like it's, it's to put in the mind of, is what it literally means. So if we're looking at teaching, it means to be more uh, communicating knowledge and truth, while admonition coming with it seems to be more like n- all of that and how it lands on the ground, right? It seems to be like application, sometimes rebuking and even warning. But these two words, you can't really separate them too much. You can't just say, I'm only going to teach, but I'm not going to admonish. Scripture almost pairs them together every time they appear. Teach and admonish. In fact, if you really want to be serious, if you're going to get to know something, that point better be to apply it into your lives. In fact, it's really hard to have knowledge that isn't applicable. Teaching seems to always be counterparted with admonition. So if we're going to just have like a, a working definition of what we mean when we say to one another that we're going to teach and admonish one another, it's, it's kind of something like this. To communicate the truth of the word and its application, aiming at maturity. Now, you're going to see how that gets developed as we go through the text and as we go through some other passages of scripture this morning. But to teach and admonish is to communicate the truth of the word and its application, aiming at maturity. Now, have you ever realized, just think about it for a second, how vital teaching is just to normal, basic life? Think about it. Did you come out of the womb able to ride a bike? No, I don't think so. Did you come out of the womb knowing how to shave? No. No. Do you know how to even use a spoon? Nope. There was very few things you came out of the womb able to do, and everything else about you was something you learned, something that was taught to you, like how to read, how to write, how to do math, how to drive. Teaching is vital for, for almost everything in life. So it obviously would make sense then that it'd be a vital thing for life in Christ, would it not? I mean, have you ever noticed how instrumental and vital teaching is to the Christian's life as well? 
to, to what we see in Scripture? I mean, the, the, here's a test question. What was the main title given to those who followed Jesus when they first started following him in the Scriptures? Disciples. Disciple literally means learner. Coming from the verb to teach. Disciple, we, 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 when, when we follow Jesus, that's kind of what becomes our identity. We're deciding to learn from him. So how many of you like, didn't realize that? <laughs> like, How many of you, when you first heard the call of God and came to believe and have faith in Christ alone for all of, your, uh, all of God's blessings and, and salvation, like, how many of you didn't realize that when you responded to that call, you were actually signing up to be a lifelong learner under the tutelage of Rabbi Jesus? Some of you knew, some of you didn't. Because that gospel didn't get, that part didn't get included. This is a little subtext sometimes whenever we preach the gospel, right? No, but, but teaching, learning is, is, is in every aspect of what it looks like to be a Christian. It's kind of our primary identity whenever we think about being a disciple of Jesus. In fact, there's this pastor named Thabiti Anmanible, and he said this in one of his articles. He said, teaching appears necessary to every aspect of the Christian life. We call ourselves disciples and we practice spiritual disciplines, ideas with their root in the classroom, in teaching and learning. Teaching is central to how we train younger generations in Titus 2, as it says. It's central to serving others in the church and living out the faith in a worthy manner, as Ephesians 4 says. Teaching is unmistakably central to the proclamation of the gospel and making disciples, as our Great Commission says. If we're going to pray, we must be taught Even singing is connected with teaching and instruction. Now, you got to ask the question, then why is is it so vital? Why is it such an instrumental part of, of following Christ, of the Christian life? Well, because that's like one of the main things Jesus did when he did things, didn't he? Like when he went into the synagogue, what did he do? He taught. When he was out in the streets, he taught. When he was up on the mountaintops, he taught. Like that, this, was, this was one of the primary things Jesus did in his ministry. In fact, you see it in his example. Whenever he comes on the scene, he's 30 years old. What does he do? One of the first things he does is he, he brings along 12 guys and he calls them disciples. That was something that was customary back then. These rabbis would, in order to pass along the, the, the training and instruction in God's word, they would bring along disciples who would follow them literally everywhere they went. And they would observe their life and they would learn. And we see these 12 disciples following Jesus to learn from him, as was customary, because Jesus was also Rabbi Jesus. And that's why after Nathanael, being so amazed by Jesus' knowledge of Nathanael, says of Jesus, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. I mean, Jesus' ministry was marked by teaching itself. He would go anywhere and he would teach. He would talk about God's will. He'd talk about the kingdom. He would talk about salvation. He would talk about money. And he would talk about sin. All these different things he would teach to the people. In fact, he taught things that got him so hated by the current teachers that they killed him for it. Why? Because he started doing things like flipping things upside down and inside out or outside in and turning things right side up. 
Like instead of, instead of murder being the bad thing, he makes it a heart issue and he calls it lust or hatred. Instead of committing adultery, he takes it inside and he says, no, lust is the real issue. Instead of, instead of the righteous law keepers getting the kingdom of heaven because they kept the law, it was those who were poor in spirit because they knew they couldn't keep the law fully. He started turning things upside down or more yet right side up and turning things outside in and inside out in his teachings, which made him unlike any other teacher that has ever walked this earth throughout all of history. Jesus was really set apart and he was far above all the teachers that have ever existed. In fact, that's why uh, we as a people agree that we don't have but one teacher, really. This is Jesus' words, but you are not to be called rabbi. We're not to call one another the teacher because that's a title really only reserved for Jesus. You have one teacher, and we're brothers and sisters. Guys, Christ is our teacher. His classroom is your life. His textbook, his word. His aim is your maturity. But why was it so important that Jesus came on the scene teaching? Why was that such a vital thing in his ministry? Well, I mean, why, why couldn't he have just done like some signs and wonders and like healed the, the lame person over there and the blind person there and like why, and then just go die on the cross and then rise from the dead? That would have been enough, right? Why? He didn't have to say a thing, right? He could have just done all that. We would have been rescued. Why was teaching such an instrumental part of his ministry? Well, because in addition to our desperate need to be rescued from sin and death and restored back to a relationship with God, we desperately need a truth in our hearts as well. Like I, 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 I say this every now and then, and, and, I, and, I, and I don't want you to minimize this, and I don't want you to lose track of this. This is probably uh, the most important thing that I've learned in the last three years that has radically changed how I understand growth. We have such an incredible capacity to be so double-minded, to believe one thing and another thing as truth, though they are polar opposites to one another. The lies you believe in your heart are the one of the biggest problems in your life right now. If you don't believe me, think about it. All of creation fell because humanity decided to believe one lie. Everything was thrust into chaos and disorder because of it. It wasn't just simply eating an apple, or it's not an apple, it's a fruit of a tree. Creation fell because they believed a lie. If you think about it, temptation, temptation, when Satan lures you with something, when he puts the bait on the hook and tries to put it in front of you, temptation is the presentation of a lie. Something that's not true. Sin really is believing the lie that results then in the crooked behavior that follows it. So like right now, 
right now in your life as a follower of Jesus, even on this side of that moment when you decided to start following him? The biggest problem is your, in your life is the lies that you believe in your heart that you don't know you believe. There are lies in there. There are false truths, untruths there that you might not even realize it, but they have unknowingly shaped the basic routines in your own life. Shapes how you relate to your parents still, or how, how you wrestle with your coworker, or, or, or how you just feel throughout the day. All the things that you do are ultimately stemming from beliefs in your own heart. In fact, in it all, I, I, I would say that there are, that I'll call them instinctual lies, things that we've been operating in, lies that we've been operating in for years that are just, they are, they're our instinct. They're what's normal to us. And so it's really hard to be able to look at them and say, well, oh, wait, that's not right because they're just a routine part of your day or how you think about things or how you process things. And so, I, I mean, as, as, as much as it's hard for me to admit this myself, it may be easier to say it about others, we have all been more deceived out of God's truth than we've ever known. What I mean by that is, is Satan's attempt to lure us away from God's truth into the lies. We've been more deceived than we would ever realize. Because isn't that kind of what he's primarily doing these days? Isn't that his greatest attack? It's his primary identity. Devil, deceiver. He lies. Guys, Jesus wasn't just coming to set us free from the brokenness in the world. He wasn't just coming to set us free from sin and death. He came to punch Satan in the mouth. And ruin his ability for Jesus' followers to be so deceived. And not only that. Not only has Jesus crushed the mouth of Satan. For those of us who are tuning into this as the ultimate authority on all truth that it speaks on. Not only did he do that but he also gives us his Holy Spirit. As believers, the moment you are, you are born again, in fact, you are unable to be born again without the Holy Spirit involved in it. And as you are born again, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And by the way, his name is the Spirit of Truth. He's called our counselor. What do counselors do? I hope good ones. Speak truth where it's needed. In fact, Scripture says he's our teacher. In fact, one of the things Jesus says about what the Holy Spirit is supposed to do in our lives is that he leads us into all truth. It's one of his primary roles. The Holy Spirit, he, he illuminates us to this as we 
read through it. He causes us to learn this, to remember it, and and to apply it rightly. He leads us into this truth again and again, and he explains it to us. He clears up the lies that are in our hearts that we've believed for so long. Guys, I'm still, I gotta tell you, like, I'm still finding lies that I'm believing in my own heart that I picked up in third grade. And they've shaped how I relate to my brothers, how I relate to my family, how I relate to my wife. And they've only led to destruction and chaos in my heart. But what we are supposed to do as Christians, as followers of Jesus in relationship with the Holy Spirit is, is as we're going through, as we're, as, as we're going through life and we, and we can identify something that's wrong within our own hearts, we take that and we hold it up to the Holy Spirit and we say, would you speak truth to my heart? Because apparently I'm convinced of something else. Jesus came to teach and to admonish. And he sent his Holy Spirit to his church to fill them, to lead us into his truth. That is why teaching is so vital to the Christian's life. It's so important to be a lifelong learner under the rabbi Jesus. But here's what's crazy, though, is that Jesus, the Son of God, and Holy Spirit are not our only instructors. They're our primary ones, but they're not our only instructors. Obviously, we, we, uh, what are you doing right now? You're sitting here listening to some guy trying to teach this, right? Like, Jesus also for some reason decided to entrust the teaching of his word to certain spirit-filled pastors to keep edifying his church. In fact, one of the primary things pastors are supposed to be able to do is to teach. And, and, and I'm going to share a verse with you. Um, I'm just not going to say anything about it. <laughs> Respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Okay. However, <laughs> mm. here's the problem. If the pastor is the only one doing teaching in the local flock, we get back to where we started, a really terrible teacher-to-student ratio where truth just seems to be up on the stage, not in your life. So what does Jesus ultimately do? How low, how far does the responsibility of of teaching reach in Jesus' church? Well, to every one of you. He charges all of his followers to teach and to admonish. I mean, this is the command for us to obey today, but we see it almost everywhere. When you look at the Great Commission, when he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. He wasn't just giving that commission to his 12 disciples. He was giving it to his disciples, which is us, you and me as well. We are responsible for teaching everything Jesus said so that people will obey it. 
We also see it in Romans 15. Paul writes to the church in Rome. He says, he says, my brothers and sisters, I myself am convinced about you that you are also full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to instruct, which is the same word for admonish, one another. Here we see it again. It just seems to be a part of what life looks like in the local church, teaching and admonishing one another. Jesus' vision, when he looks at his church, it was to never have just one person teaching God's word, restricted to that one person, and just the vast majority of people solely depending on that one person for the teaching and access to this book. Why do you think the Reformation happened? It unleashed this into the hands of every follower of Jesus. Because it's your relationship with the Father as well. We're all to be teaching. We're all to be making disciples of Jesus. In fact, that's why we have it as part of our mission as a church. We are all to, what is our mission? Love. I think the five of you who said that, thank you. Make disciples. How are we to make disciples? We teach and we admonish. Paul gives an example of this in Titus 2. He says the older women in the church are to take on the instruction and the teaching of the younger women. The older men in the church, the more mature, are to be taking on the instruction and the teaching of the younger men in the church. Generational discipleship. So this really is for you. Not just me. Now when, when you hear that, you may have already done this long ago, or maybe that was the moment you were like, yeah, I'm checking out, uh, because you say, well, I'm just not qualified to do that. I don't have a, a I don't have a, uh, I didn't go to seminary, I'm not trained in this, I didn't get a master's of divinity and theological and exegetical approaches to the canonical scriptures. Well, guess what? I didn't either. <laughs> uh, not only because that degree isn't a real degree, I just made that one up. Here's what's Here's what appears in Scripture several times. It's that some of you should not be teaching one another yet. Some of you are not qualified to teach God's Word yet. Some of you should not be doing that. Why? Not because I'm trying to encourage you to disobey God's Word, but because you haven't pressed further into your faith because you haven't gone deeper into truth. The way scripture talks about it is that you're still nursing that bottle of milk and you've refused to eat meat even though it's available. And, and, and so, so I'm just going to try to say this from God's word and let it do its work. I'm, I don't feel like I have to add on to this. This is what Hebrews says. Although by this time, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need milk, not solid food. Now everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. You could be teachers by now, but you've refused to start eating meat. Guys, biblical illiteracy is one of the greatest 
problems plaguing the church. People just don't know this. Now, what might keep someone a spiritual infant only able to process milk, not able to eat meat? Well, Paul actually says something very similar in his letter to the church in Corinth in his first letter in chapter 3. I just was reading it the other day. He says the same thing, like you, 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 you need milk. You're not able to eat meat yet. You, you could be serving meat to other people, but you're still not able to eat it yourself. You're needing milk. And, and you know why? He says why? Because you are still worldly. So I'm not, I'm not saying that that's the state of our church, but what I am saying is if worldliness is what dwells richly among us, we will forever stay spiritual infants. But if the Word dwells richly among us, you will find some of the most spiritually mature people in our flock. So I, I, earnestly, want, I earnestly want you to be making disciples, to be teaching others, to be admonishing one another, to be in obedience to this text. So that means that you need to press on into the meat yourself. You need to be gobbling that steak up, right? You need to be eating it up so you can cook some up and give it to someone else too. Well, how do you get there? How can we get to the place where we can, we can be teaching and admonishing one another well? Well, the, the text says, in, in, so why don't we just let it develop that, right? The first thing I would tell you is to be in the Word so the Word will be in you. Can you say that? To be in the Word so the Word You see, this is what qualifies you to be teaching and admonishing. This is what qualifies you, and it's what we teach Verse 16 starts out with, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Guys, this is, this is the word of Christ. This is what has been recorded and passed down through generations. Wars have been fought over this. They've tried to burn this thing up. It doesn't go anywhere. We keep finding it coming through every war and every trial. This thing stands, as we just sang, it's ancient and it's relevant. This is the word of Christ. This is to dwell among us richly. You notice how he says, let it dwell among you richly? It's like, if we let it, if we give it permission, it will roar in. And what's ironic is, the way he talks about it is, let it dwell among you richly. It's the same word as to live in or to set up home in. It's the same kind of language that's used of Jesus' incarnation to earth. So in the same way that Jesus comes to dwell on earth, the word is coming to dwell in your heart. That's the idea. But we have to be in the word so the word can be in us. And as we do, as we're in it, it drenches us. It, it advances within us. It deals with us as we deal with it. But we have to be in it. You know, one of, uh, some of my favorite, favorite memories in life include my, my grandparents, specifically my grandfather, my mom's dad, uh, Richard Moore. Uh, he died in 2020. 
Um, my grandfather loved to be in God's word every day. In fact, he read through the whole Bible cover to cover at least 20-something times in his life. And when he got sick with brain cancer, um, reading his Bible uh, became impossible for him. He just couldn't do it. It was very difficult. So he would have it read to him. But he couldn't read it. And, and that affected my mom. My mom uh, really enjoyed seeing my dad or my grandfather get to read the Word every day. And, it, and it, she missed being able to see him. And so she mentioned that to him one time. Dad, I miss, I miss seeing you in, in, in God's Word every day. And, and my grandpa's response with brain cancer in his head, well, I've been in the Bible for so long that I think it's in me now. Guys, you gotta love this book. You gotta love it. And better yet, love the author of it. Love him with all your heart. This is his word to you. Love it and, and obey everything that it says you ought to obey. Treasure this book. It's really hard to treasure uh, or, or to teach something that you don't self, yourself treasure. It's really hard to commend something to others, what you don't yourself cherish. Right? You, you, got, you got to be in this. And it's got to be over a long period of time. And it's got to be a lot more than just your verse for the day from your app. <laughs> if I can be honest. You get your little email with the one little verse. Oh, that's good for the week. Oh, like get in the whole thing. There's a story here. Be in the word so the word will be in you. Here's the second thing that I see in the text from this is that we need to train to wisely wield the word. If we're going to teach and admonish one another, we have to train well on how to wield it. Right? He says in verse 16 at the end, he says, teaching and admonishing one another in what? In all wisdom. In all wisdom. Brothers and sisters, the word of God is called the sword of the spirit. Right? And, and so, so what, do you think it be, it, what do you think it takes to become really competent with a sword? Right? Practice. Right? Training. It takes experience. It takes also discernment. Right? How to use it, when to use it. Guys, we, we can, this is, this is a, the sword of the Spirit, and there's a way that, that we can offer a word of truth from it, and it be like a balm on a burn, and it soothes. But there's also a way that we can give an untimely word from this, and it be like a bludgeon on the head. So, for example, like sitting next to one of your brothers in Christ at the bedside, who just lost his wife and like saying the truth that God works. Well, God's going to work this all together for good. You think that's a timely word for that truth? No, that's a bludgeon. Though it is true, wisdom knows how to wield it in a timely way. Mishandling God's word can cause serious injury to people's faith and to your relationship with them. So it's why we need wisdom to wield this well, to wield it, to be able to teach one another and admonish one another. So we need wisdom. And guess what? 
Here's the best part. James 1 says that God's wisdom, it's free. Like, you can have it when you want it if you ask for it without doubting. You can have it. All you have to do is ask. You don't have because you don't ask. We just need wisdom on how to wield it well so that in the moment when you are by the bedside, you ask God, give me wisdom. And he gives you the right word. Train with the word on how to wield it. It's part of your armor. So get good with it. That's your task. And then here's one last, um, one last thing that I see from the context uh, for us to be able to teach and admonish one another well. Be fat. Be uh, fat. I'm not going to ask you to repeat that. You remember the context? Remember the things that we are to put on, like kindness, compassion, humility, meekness, and patience in these things? I think there are three characteristics, and I've heard this saying from Dave Simpson, I think a previous pastor, maybe, was it Keith, who would say it all the time, about what we need to be in order for us to to really do relationship well within the flock, and especially if we're going to be a kind of people who are to be teaching and admonishing one another, if that's going to be the case in our culture, in our church, there are three characteristics that are vital for us to put on for this work. It's to be faithful, approachable, and teachable. Faithful and approachable and a teachable. And here's the way I think about faithfulness. Faithful means, means that you are committed to believing everything God says is true. Like that's part of your nature. You're committed to believing all God's truth. If you're approachable, that means it's not hard for people to come up and talk to you about God's truth. It means that you don't keep people at an arm's length. You're easily able to be accessed. And not only that, but you're teachable. You're somebody who's willing and eager to learn because that's part of your primary identity as a disciple of Jesus. Guys, you know how many times, sometimes like I get like in my heart offended that somebody would come up and try to teach me something that I already know? Am I the only one who gets, like feels like that's criticism? I guess I am. Hey, there's one. I got somebody in the boat. Or all of you just unwilling to admit it. Remember we said confess your sins to one another. It feels critical. Like when somebody says, yeah, I already know that. What if our demeanor and our approach to be teachable, approachable, and faithful was to celebrate all God's truth, even if we already know it? When somebody comes and says, hey, I just learned this the other day, and I thought it would be a good word for you. Yeah, I actually, I just, I just read that too. I, I know that comes from that verse. Praise God for that truth. What if that's our heart? Because they're coming to the same truth that we got from this. What if we celebrated it instead of feeling criticized by it? That will help in being approachable because you're teachable and you're faithful. So this is what I see from the text, how we can teach and admonish one another well in the culture of our church, that we need to be in the word so the word will be in us, that we need to train to wisely wield the word, and that we finally, we just got to be fat, faithful, approachable, and teachable. And, and, and I, I want to say this, to what end? What are we getting after whenever we're trying to teach and admonish one another? And this is what I'm going to end with. Our aim, we find it in the same book, Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. Jesus Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone, that's the admonishing, 
everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone what? Mature in Christ. Guys, we're not just simply getting after head knowledge. We're not just simply after lofty theological debates, right? No, we're after maturity. And if we're going to define maturity, here's what I want to put before you. That it's radical and total obedience to Rabbi Jesus. Maturity really is that. Radical and total obedience to Rabbi Jesus. Because real faith, understanding truth in your heart, leads to obedience, Authentic faith is accompanied by obedient works. That's why, that's why in Romans 1, Paul says this, through Christ Jesus we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the what? The obedience of faith. There's an obedience that's to accompany our faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So, so I, I mentioned earlier that there are those who just haven't pressed on into the deeper truths in God's word. They're sipping on milk nursing that for their whole lives. The other side of the equation is that the problem is that there are so many Christians who are so far educated beyond their own obedience. It's not that you need to know more, you need to do more with what you know. There's maturity there. And ultimately and really, it's just, it's gonna start with you. It's going to start with you being serious about growing up in the Lord, diving deeper, pressing on further, asking for Holy Spirit to lead you into truth, to feed it to you every day. You're in God's word so that this will be in you and you'll learn how to wield it wisely and it'll develop Christ-likeness within you so that you can teach and admonish others and so that you can be admonished and taught as well. If I can be honest, this probably wasn't the funnest sermon for you. But if we're going to say that Jesus is our teacher and he's our Lord, and all of our lives are going to be in surrendered to obedience to him, then this word was for you today. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your son, that he came to teach us your truth, to give us your word that shows us who we are, that redefines our, 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 our identities, that, that, that gives us new hope to be able to see far beyond what we're believing in our heart. And God, I thank you for your spirit that you send to us, who leads us into all truth, who counsels us, especially in the recesses of the dark night of the soul or, or in the confusion and chaos of anxieties. God, we thank you for your spirit who is able and ready to lead us into truth. But God, I pray that this morning would be instrumental in in humbling each and every one of us to be able to agree, man, I really don't know all that I don't know. In fact, I know enough to know that I don't know that much. So I pray that we would be humbled to the position of learner, of student, that you would convince us of how valuable it is to have your truth reigning in our hearts, to have you reigning more in our lives through your word, through your truth. God, I'm convinced that if a king, if we were serving a king and he were to issue a decree out of our loyalty to that king and love for him, we would very seriously take his word 
In the same way, Jesus, you are our rabbi king, and we want to very seriously take your word. So let your word dwell richly among us, I pray. We ask for all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. amen.